Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, you're going to be turning to the Revelation, the Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We're in the midst of an interlude. Remember, chronologically, there are some times in the Revelation where it stops, and there's a parenthesis. And in that parenthesis, God gives us important information and usually words of encouragement. And we're in the midst of one of those interludes right now between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blowing. Last week, we saw part of that interlude was the fact that it introduced a mighty angel and a little book. We talked about that mighty angel of God as well as the little book that John was to take and to prophesy and to preach from. Now comes the second part of that interlude, and it deals with John measuring the temple and also the introduction of the two witnesses. Probably one of the most intriguing things about the study of Revelation and people grab hold of is about who are these two witnesses who are going to come and witness in that time of the tribulation. We'll talk about that today. My hope and my prayer is you open up your mind, open up your spirit, and allow God to speak to your heart and communicate truth to you, not only about the revelation and what's happening, but about what God wants to speak to your own individual heart. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be our teacher. For the only one who can teach us your word is the one who wrote that word, and that's the Holy Spirit. So we ask you to open our hearts and our minds, grab hold of us today, And have your will and your way in our lives. Speak to us a truth that will make a difference. Not only in the future, but today, this very day. Help us to see that and grab hold of it. And you to be glorified in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen. And Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar... And those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemy. If anyone desires to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesy. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they finished, you need to underline this phrase, and when they finished their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who, are dw- who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Leave your Bibles open, please, as we look at the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses. John was told by a voice from heaven that you're to take a reed or a staff, a rod, and you are to go and to rise up and you are to measure out the temple of God. You're to measure the altar and those who worship in it, but the outer court You are not to measure because it will be trod under by the nations. What in the world does that have to do with the revelation? It has everything to do with it. One of the things that you have to remember is that the temple of God is so very, very important to God, to God's people, and to the holy city. It's kind of interesting to me that God didn't want a temple built. Did you all know that? You remember that? God was satisfied with the tabernacle, but David placed on David's heart, he wanted to build God a place. And so God, even though he didn't want a temple, he allowed David to plan the temple, and it was finally built by Solomon. Solomon built this glorious temple, and it was wonderful. And and everybody just awed, and God put his Shekinah glory upon it and adopted that temple. From then on, the temple is important to God, very important to God. But you realize that in the Scripture, there are actually four temples. The one that Solomon built, that glorious temple, was torn down by Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? He destroyed that temple. He destroyed all of Jerusalem. Whenever he carried the exiles out over to Babylon, he totally destroyed the temple of Solomon. The children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. After 70 years, under the decree of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, they were given permission to go back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. And they come back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And they come there, and it takes them a while. Matter of fact, Haggai and Zechariah, those prophets, have to encourage them to stay at the business of getting that temple built. But finally, they build the temple, but it is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. Somebody described it much like a lean-to. But even though it wasn't filled with glory, God's presence was still there, and he still anointed that place, the temple. But that temple was torn down and was decimated and by a man called Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. Matter of fact, he did what was called the abomination of desolation in their time. What Antiochus did, he came in whenever they defeated the Jews. He came in into the temple riding on his horse and commanded that pig's blood be painting the walls of the interior of the temple. And remember that pigs and hogs were unclean. And so it's the worst thing that he could have possibly done for that temple. And ultimately it's destroyed. Till Herod comes along, Herod the Great. And Herod decides he wants to build a temple. And he builds another beautiful, glorious temple. And that temple stayed into existence until 70 A.D. That's an important date. In 70 A.D., Titus, 
who was a general of the Romans, he came and he destroyed, he destroyed the temple, he destroyed Jerusalem. That's when all the Jews ran, went down to Masada and where the, the siege on Masada happened. But it was the fulfillment of what Jesus had said when he had walked around the temple. He said, there's coming a day when not one stone will be on top of the other stone on the temple. And they couldn't believe that he said that. But by, in 70 AD, that temple was totally destroyed. So those three temples had been built and totally destroyed, but there's yet to be a fourth temple, yet to be a fourth temple. It's not today. Matter of fact, it was not even the day of John. Remember, John lived to be an old man, and he writes this probably in 90 to 95 AD. I just told you the temple was destroyed when? In 70 AD. That means that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed about 20 or 25 years before John ever penned this. John knew that the temple was destroyed. But what was the command that God gave? What was the command that God gave to John? Look at it there in verse 1. There was given me a measuring rod with a staff, and someone said, Rise up and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship in it. In other words, what John was seeing and what John was commanded is that you are to go and you're to measure out that fourth temple. For the temple will be rebuilt. And you're to go and you're to measure. A measuring rod in Scripture fulfilled two things. One is to measure something means that you possessed it or you owned it. And so whenever he goes out and he's measuring that temple and he's measuring the holy place and the holy of holies, it's talking about the altar and the place where God dwells. Remember, there's there's three parts. There's the outer court, there's the holy place, and there's the holy of holy. He's supposed to measure the two inner parts, but he says, do not measure the outer part for a particular reason. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But he's to measure that. And when he measures it, it means it's God's possession, number one. But the second thing, whenever he is given to measure it, he's given a rod, a rod or a staff. A rod is always a picture of discipline or judgment. And so what this is, when he is, when he's going and measuring it on behalf of God, it's not that this is just God's possession, but God says he is going to judge. He's going to judge the children of Israel. He's going to judge the Jews. He's going to judge them based here on this temple. There's going to be a time of judgment that is going to take place that is going to happen. All right? You've got to get that in your mind. But he said on the outer court, do not measure it. Do not measure it because the nations, the Gentiles, the people of the world, those who are not the chosen people of God, they shall trod it underfoot. They shall trod it underfoot. In other words... It's supposed to be just for the Jewish people, but the Jews and the Gentiles will be in, in, in common fellowship, and they'll be there, and it's not a sanctified place, so do not measure it. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, whenever you go, and I hope you do go to Israel sometime, but whenever you go to Israel, you'll see a number of things. First of all, you come to understand that there's a place, a sacred place called Temple Mount. That's where the temple was built. It's where uh, Abraham was offering up his son as a sacrifice. It's the place where God says, this is where the temple will be built. David bought that place so the temple could be built there, and it's been Temple Mount. It is a holy, holy place. But if you go to Israel today and you go to, to Temple Mount, you'll find out something. Temple Mount is not controlled by the Jews. It's not controlled by the Christians. Temple Mount, in a treaty after the Six-Day War, in that treaty, it gave possession of Temple Mount to the Muslims. The Muslims possess Temple Mount. 
They controlled all the gates except one. The Jews were given one key. And there's only one entrance that a Jew can go on Temple Mount. But they can go through that one door. So whenever you go and you go to Temple Mount, you're going to go through that one gate, through that one door to get on Temple Mount. But whenever you enter Temple Mount, you are entering to the third most holy place of the Muslims. There you'll find what is called the Mosque of Omar. We know it as the dome of the, the golden dome or the dome of the rock. And you see it in all kind of pictures. Well, that's not the temple. That's a mosque. And the Muslims control Temple Mount. And they want you to know that they control it. Outside, right outside the gate though, right outside Temple Mount, you'll find what is called the Temple Institute. And when you walk through the Temple Institute, you know what you find? You find that the Jews have built everything that goes into the temple. They have every different thing from lampstands to brazen altar to the golden altar to everything that you can imagine. All the stuff that's needed to fill the temple when the temple is rebuilt. They've got everything ready. Matter of fact, right outside of the door, they have the golden candlestick. It is up here. It is made of pure gold. It is up. It's high. And it it overlooks Temple Mount. And it's the way the Jews are telling the Muslims that we're coming. God said there's going to be a temple that's going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a temple that's going to be there. And we got everything ready. So when it's time to take over, we're going to have everything ready to take over the temple. So the temple will be rebuilt. But here's the question. When will the temple be rebuilt? Now, some Christian historians are going to say this, that in order for the temple to be rebuilt, the Dome of the Rock is going to have to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed by earthquake, going to be overrun. Something, something's got to move it in order for the temple to be built there because they believe that it's, it's built right on the spot where the temple was. But a number of years, uh, an archaeologist historian named Asher Kaufman Asher Kaufman had a really interesting study. Whenever he studied all the documents of Temple Mount, he found out that the temple was actually built just on the other side of the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar. Matter of fact, it's only 20 feet away from there. So what Kaufman is saying is there is the possibility, there is the possibility that on Temple Mount you might have the Dome of the Rock and you could have the temple at the same time. Now, everybody would, a Jew would gasp at that. (laughs) How would we ever, that would be terrible for that to happen. Except for the fact of what is going to happen during the time of the tribulation. During those seven years. You remember what happens and who comes on the scene. There's one who comes on the scene who's called the beast. And he'll be introduced here in just a minute. The beast comes on the scene or who is called the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to be the ruler over the world. He is going to be given rulership over the whole world, not because of warfare. He's just going to come and he's going to be the answer to everybody's problems. He's going to be thought to be the wisest and the greatest leader there is. Without ever firing a shot, he is going to be given rulership over the entire world. And one of the things that he's going to do in those first days of being in that time of tribulation, what he's going to do is he's going to go and he's going to make a treaty. He's going to make a treaty with the Jews. He's going to make a treaty with the Jews. And he's going to tell them that we're going to to treat you right and we're going to do everything right. And in that time, in that time, it can be very likely that that's when the temple would be allowed to be rebuilt. 
The Antichrist will literally say, let them build it on Temple Mount. It could be built right beside the Dome of the Rock. And everybody signed this treaty and everybody seems to have peace and everything seems to be going well. Right there during the time of tribulation. That could be one of the reasons that it says, do not measure the outer court because the Gentiles have overrun the outer court. In other words, instead of it being a holy place, to be set aside just for Jews, that in that time, because they've made a treaty and because they have peace between the whole world and the Antichrist is ruling, it's as though it's one world and one world government, one world religion, and we're all trying to be ecumenical, and, and therefore the Gentiles and the Jews are all run together. Do not measure the outer court. Do not measure the outer court, for the Gentiles will trot it underfoot, but measure the inner court, for that's where the judgment will happen. Well, what does that mean? Three and a half years. This is based on Daniel chapter 9, okay? Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. Write it down. It tells you right there in Daniel's prophecy about the Antichrist and the prince of the world who's coming, that he will make a treaty He will make a treaty and there will be peace in the world the first part of that week, those seven years. But halfway through that week, three and a half years, it says he will break his treaty. He will break his treaty with the Jews. He will come into the temple. He will proclaim himself. He'll he'll forbid all altar worship. All sacrifices, all everything, forbid all of that, set an idol up in the middle of the temple and pronounce himself as God and demand that everyone will worship him. That's going to happen three and a half years into it. You get the picture? You get the picture of how that judgment of God is about to take place? You get the picture of how the temple could be rebuilt, trodden underfoot. Now, all of a sudden, there's going to be this, there's going to be this happening of the judgment that's going to happen at three and a half years. Whenever the old Antichrist comes and takes over the temple that was supposed to be set up for worship. Now, here's one of the sad realities about that. These Jews who are setting up worship, these Jews who are setting up worship, they're not worshiping God through the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going back to their same practices and that just like they are to a Jew today who is not a Messianic Jew, who's not a believer, they still follow the same practices. They go to the wailing wall. They're praying every day for their Messiah to come. They're waiting for the Messiah to come who's going to give them peace. They reject Jesus as the Messiah and they can't wait to set up the temple again so they can begin to offer the sacrifices. Somebody asked me the question and I asked a, a Jew, one of the Jewish guides that we had this question. Why do, why do Jews no longer offer sacrifice? Why do they no longer offer sacrifices? And here was the answer. No temple, no sacrifice. There are no sacrifices until the temple is present. And when the temple is restored, they will begin then to offer sacrifices just like they did in the Old Testament period. They will begin to practice that. They do not accept Jesus. They're following their their. Uh, Legalism, they're following their altar, sacrifice, worship. All of that thing's going to happen. It's going to happen until the three and a half years. And it says, not only in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says that that man of lawlessness, talking about the Antichrist, is going to come and set up himself in the temple and all sacrifices will stop. 
See, once the temple is rebuilt, they'll start doing sacrifices. But the sacrifice will stop whenever he comes because he's going to take over. And whenever that happens, the world has never seen the horrible experiences the Jews are going to go through in Jerusalem, in that holy city, for the next three and a half years, culminating in the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Just these two little verses says, listen, go measure that temple. You measure that temple, measure the altar, but do not measure the court, for it shall be trodden under, underfoot the holy city for 42 months, for three and a half years, it's going to be in judgment, right? Now, beginning in verse 3, he introduces us to the two witnesses, God's two witnesses. You write this down. God always has a witness, Amen. In every, in every era, in every generation, God always has a witness. You need to get that in your mind. Well, who is the witness in our day? Who's supposed to be the witness of God in our day? The church. The church is the witness in our day. Exactly. But wait a minute. We believe, I believe, that to begin this whole thing, the church is going to be what? The church is going to be raptured. So the church is not here anymore. The spirit-filled church that's supposed to be the witness of Christ is not here anymore. So who is going to be the witness? God always has a witness. So who are going to be the witnesses for God in this time of tribulation? You get introduced to the the two key people here in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. God has two witnesses that he's sending here to be the witness of his testimony, to be the witness of his presence in the time of tribulation. Now, they're just being introduced here in this interlude, but I want you to understand, they began to work right after the rapture. Right after the rapture of the church happens, they're here, and they're busy, and they're working. And they've got a job to do, and that is to be the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell and to share with this world that remains. The church is gone. But with all those earth dwellers to to share in this world, to share and to be a testimony about Jesus Christ. They're going to keep talking about Jesus and telling about Jesus. And it says they wear sackcloth. Remember, sackcloth is for for sadness or for pain or for agony and for hurt. And and the idea of trying to intercede where there needs to be uh, repentance. And it says they wear sackcloth all of that time in sadness of where the world is and the world dweller, earth dwellers are, and the fact that they need to be saved and they need to turn to Christ. And they began to witness these two witnesses. Look what it says. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, that's one of the most exciting scriptures that you'll see. Turn in your old, to the Old Testament, or at least write it down, to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is right before you get to Malachi, all right? And it's a prophecy. And I want to tell you, I want to share with you what Zechariah said. Zechariah, the prophet, was looking forward, looking ahead of what was going to take place, and he saw something. He saw this golden, these golden lampstands, and he saw something there. So look what it says in verse number 2 of Zechariah 4. 
And he said to me, what are you seeing? And he said, I see, be, behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowls on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which was on top. So he says, I see set a lampstand with seven, seven lamps on it. He said, verse 3, also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side of the bowl. Then I answered and said to the angel, who was speaking with me? What are these, my Lord? So the angel is speaking to me, answered and said to me, do you not see what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He goes on down. He says in verse number nine, the hand of Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. He goes to verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand. Going down to verse 14. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Whenever Zechariah sees that, he sees seven lamps and he sees two olive trees. Olive trees represent the presence of the Holy Spirit. All right. The olive oil is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why he anointed somebody. They anointed him with the olive oil as they prayed for them. The Holy Spirit is indwelling and filling and giving to these seven lamps so that they can shine, perpetually shine. shine. In the Revelation, whenever we started, God identified his seven churches and those who were the pastors of those churches, the angels of the churches, and the seven churches were identified by what? Seven lampstands. Seven lampstands. What Zechariah was seeing was this, that in the church age, it was through the churches filled with the Holy Spirit that God was going to show his power. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He's showing about the church age. But go on. Now there's no longer seven lampstands because the church is what? It's gone. It's been raptured. Now these are the two lampstands and they're the two olive trees. In other words, the church is gone. It's not the witness anymore. But in this day and time, God has two witnesses, and they are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, they will be the witnesses of God, the witnesses of the plan of God. And they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, able to do their work. So when the rapture happens, these two witnesses show up, filled with the Holy Spirit, wearing sackcloth, preaching against sin, preaching against judgment, preaching against being an earth dweller, and pointing people to God. These two are probably, write this down, they are probably the instrument God uses to win the 144,000 Jews. Those 144,000 Jews who are going to be set apart and evangelists for God, probably these two witnesses are the ones who lead them to Christ who share with them the truth. But for those who accept Christ, there will be many who will reject Christ. And they're going to be preaching and preaching and preaching, filled with the Spirit of God, being the witness of God. Now back here to Revelation chapter 11. That's how it describes these guys. Verse 5. If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. Boy, that's different from the church age, isn't it? That's different from the church age. What, what did Jesus tell us? He said, if somebody slaps you on the left cheek, give him what? Give him your right. 
Let them slap you twice, right? If somebody sins against you, forgive them of their sin. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. That's the church age. That's living like Jesus, being like, but wait a minute. These guys, if somebody tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth. If somebody tries to do them wrong, they will be killed. What is it telling you? The church age is over, my friend. This is a return to the Old Testament era. It's a return to the working of God among the Jews. And back in that day and time, there was time when the fire of God came down. You remember when Elijah, uh, Ahaziah had, had fallen through, a, uh, out of his bed and had fallen through a, a wicker thing, and he, he sends for Elijah to get a word from Elijah, and he sends an army sends a man and 50 soldiers, and he sends them over there, and he says, go bring Elijah here. And whenever Elijah said, he said, if you're a man of God, the man of God is to come. And, and Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, let the fire come down and consume you. Remember that? And all of them were killed. Does it about three or four times. So finally, one guy says, please, please don't do that to me and my man. Would you just please come? Whenever they're going to come force him, to, all he did is speak, and the fire of God comes down. I mean, that's an Old Testament stuff. This is Jewish. This isn't the church anymore. This is how God dealt with the Jews, and this is how he's dealing with the world. And he says, whenever they try to harm, if they try to do these guys wrong or hurt them, they are invincible. They are invincible. They cannot be harmed. The Antichrist cannot touch them. No one can stop them. They are there to fulfill God's plan. Not only that, look what else it says about them. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, who are these guys? Well, there's different opinions about it. The most popular opinion of who these two witnesses are, are Elijah and Moses, based on that verse. Elijah was the one who prayed and it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again and rain came. All right? So it says right here, these have the power to close off the heavens and stop the rain. Moses is the one who had the power to turn the waters of the Nile into blood. And also he brought about and called for ten plagues on Egypt, whereby the children of Israel were set free. So it describes an event that Elijah did and an event that Moses did. And people say, well, it would obviously be them because of a couple of things. First of all, in Malachi chapter 3, it's prophesied that Elijah will come before Jesus comes. Now, he said John the Baptist was that impartial, but it could be the fact that Elijah is supposed to come and and precede him in his second coming. It's not only that. He's the one who shut off the heavens to keep it from raining. He also is the one that met with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. There are a whole lot of things that point to the fact that it could be Elijah. Same way it could point to Moses. He's the one who uh, met also at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's the one who called forth the, the river to turn into blood. He's the one who called the plagues. All of this, it could be Moses and Elijah. Another is the fact it's Elijah and Enoch. And the reason that is, is because it says it is appointed unto every man to die once, and after that there's the judgment. Only two men ever lived on the face of the earth who never died. One of those was Enoch, and the other was Elijah. Now Moses died, and God buried him, and nobody knows where he buried him. But because those two men never died, and it said it's appointed unto every man to die once, then after the judgment, some people think Enoch and Elijah. 
But you can't really necessarily hold on that because some of us aren't going to die either. We're going to be raptured, amen? (laughs) We're going to be raptured. So whichever one, I would lean to Moses and Elijah. But here's the truth. It might not be any of those historical characters, but it may be people who are, have the same anointing of the power of God in their lives to where they fulfill the same things. They had the same protection. They did the same things, had the same power to do those things. I don't know who they are, and I don't know exactly how they fit into history. If they don't fit into history, but I can tell you this, they're coming. And they're going to be here, and they're going to carry out a bold witness. Now, look what happens. This happens in verse 7. Very important. Had you underline it. And when they finished their testimony, that's important. When they finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss, this beast is not introduced till about chapter 13, but it's the Antichrist, all right? This is the Antichrist. The, abyss, the, the beast who comes out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, if you want a time frame, probably the first part of the rapture, after the rapture, and the first part of the tribulation period, those seven years, these guys are witnessing. It says they're going to witness for for three and a half years, all right, 42 months, 1,260 days. They're going to witness for that period. They can't be touched. They're invincible. The power of God is all around them. People are responding to the gospel, and some people reject the gospel, just like they do in our day, that's going to happen. And then beginning in the halfway period, that's when the Antichrist is going to break that covenant. He's going to break that treaty. He's going to reveal his true character. And his first one of his first acts of world domination and revealing his true character is he's going to kill these two witnesses. He's going to kill these two witnesses. All right? Now... This is what I want you to know why I had you underline. They're not killed till they're finished. Amen? Bless God. <laughs> they're not. God doesn't let them be killed until they're finished. When, they're fin- when God's finished with them and their testimony's over, then God says, okay, it can happen. Now, let me tell you what's good about that. Everybody's worried about how long they're going to live, where they're going to die, and how they're going to die. Everything. Let me tell you something about God. You're going to live till you're finished. Amen? Don't worry about it. You're going to live till you're finished. And whenever you're finished and God's ready for you to go home, you're going home no matter what you, where you are, what you're trying to do, how you're trying to protect yourself. Whenever God's ready for you to come home, you're coming home. So why worry about it? You don't have any charge over it anyway. Amen? Don't worry about it. Because God's in charge. He has two witnesses against an entire ungodly world. And they can't touch him. Till God says, you're finished. You're finished. And now the old beast comes up and he kills them. And whenever he, I love this about God. He lets the old enemy think they win when it's really a total defeat for them. Amen. He did that at the cross and at the resurrection. He did it old Satan. Satan can't learn. The old beast is going to think he's going to do the world a favor. And he comes in and he kills those two witnesses. Look what happens now. Please don't miss this. All right. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Where, what city is he talking about? Jerusalem. Where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. But mystically, they're called Sodom and and Egypt. Sodom, a picture of sin. Egypt, a picture of worldliness and a lack of repentance. A failure to respond to the message of, of Moses, 
our failure to respond to the message of God. Isn't that why Jesus wept over them and said, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, why would you not come let me gather you as a mother, a, ch- a hen would her chicks? They didn't respond. So mystically, they're called Sodom and Egypt, but we're talking about Jerusalem. They were killed in Jerusalem, and they lay on the streets of Jerusalem. Look what it says, verse 9. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Now, you got to imagine, in that culture, people, even the worst of people, were thought to have been buried or should have been buried that day. That's even when they hung Jesus on the cross and the thieves on the cross. They took them and buried them that day. It's not the idea that you just let it prolong and prolong, but put them in the grave. That is to even honor the most sinful of people. So the natural thing for them after they died was to take them, put them in the grave, but they didn't. They were doing doing something to humiliate them. They leave their bodies on the street for three and a half days And it said this, for all the world, all peoples and all nations to see them. Now, listen, years ago, a hundred years ago, people said, that's impossible. That couldn't possibly happen. There's no way for an event to happen in the streets of Jerusalem and for the whole world to have an eye and see it. But today we know that can happen. Amen. Because something happens on the other side of the world. And in five seconds, you are aware of what happens on the other side of the world. It is possible in our day and time that they will die on the streets and the whole world will see their bodies laying on the street and no one gives them a place to die. No one gives them a burial spot. Notice that's not all though. Shows you the wickedness of the world. Look what it says in verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth, remember earth dwellers, those are the people who made this world their home instead of having a heavenly vision. And the earth dwellers will rejoice over them and make merry. And they will send, it's a counterfeit Christmas, okay? And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They send presents to one another. They're rejoicing. They're having a party. These two old witnesses, these two old prophets are dead. They have caused us misery and pain and agony and tormented us and now bless the devil, not God, they are no more here. They're gone. We don't have to deal with them anymore. I want to tell you, my friends, that's the response a lot of times to a prophet or preacher of the gospel. See, the gospel, when it's preached, either you love the gospel and love the person who delivers the gospel because you got set free, or you can't stand them because it torments your soul. And these old prophets, these old witnesses have tormented their soul for three and a half years. They've heard them enough. They're sick of them. And now they're dead. We're going to throw a party. We're going to throw a party. Do you see the wickedness of the world? Who would throw a party at the death of someone? They did. Look what happens. And after three and a half days... The breath from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. I think that's an understatement, amen? (laughs) I mean, you've been been throwing a party because they're dead, and now they're alive. Oh, wow. The breath of God resurrects them. The power of God comes into their life. Man, what a miracle. 
What an amazing thing. And the whole world beholds it. There is no denying it. You know, isn't it interesting? When Jesus resurrected, only a few people knew it. When these guys resurrect, the whole world's going to see it. The whole world's going to know it. There is going to be no excuses. For three and a half days, they have already started decaying. And life comes back into them. Look what happens in verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven. They, everybody, saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. I told you God likes clouds. Amen. In the cloud and their enemies beheld them. Wouldn't you like to see a picture of that? Well, I will get to see that one day probably. But yeah, wouldn't you like to see a picture? I'd like to see their faces. The dead ones have come back to life. They've been called to heaven. They've gone to heaven. And they're sitting there with their mouths open. And they realize they've been in the presence of something that's beyond them. Because look what happens next. Verse 13. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. I believe it. When Jesus resurrected, there's a great earthquake too. Amen. A great earthquake. And a tenth of that city of Jerusalem fell. It means it collapsed. And 7,000, it says people here, but it's not just people, 7,000 prominent people. That's what it literally means. 7,000 leaders, 7,000 significant people in the population. 7,000 of their leaders were killed in that earthquake. 7,000 people, just like that, wiped out. But look what happens next. And the rest were terrified and gave to the God, gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, I don't want you to mis- misunderstand that. This is a fulfillment of where they're going to get on their faces before Almighty God. And they're going to now announce the glory of God. And they're going to talk about how glorious God is and he's beyond who they are and what they could ever imagine. This is not them in repentance. For see, they do not repent. You'll read in a few chapters later, there's still as much a sin as they were. They still are unrepentant before Almighty God. They're crying out because of the agony. They're crying out because they don't understand. They're crying out because they're in the presence of something that they cannot grasp that is greater than them. And they realize that they're going to have to deal with this holy, awesome, life-giving God that they have rejected. This is not unto salvation. This is not unto repentance. It's just to recognize God in his glory. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. It closes off the interlude. Now, the sixth trumpet had blown. The next thing happens, the seventh trumpet blows. But in this interlude, God says to his children, hey, don't worry. <laughs> hey, I'm in charge. Hey, I've got a plan. And I'm the one who determines life and death. I'm the one who always has a witness. I'm the one who is God Almighty. As I tell you every week, the preaching of the revelation is not for us to fill our minds with information. It is to fill, as believers, our hearts with inspiration. We ought to be inspired by that. But the real purpose of the revelation is that if any person here who is listening by by internet or any person who is hearing this message, if you don't know Jesus, give your heart to Jesus. 
Give your heart to Jesus. We don't know when the time will happen, but the time is set out. And the plan is all laid out. And God knows when the time will be. And now is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity of grace. Now is the privilege you have to be saved. Do not wait. Do not wait. Give your heart to Jesus today. Give your heart to Jesus today. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.